I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Unplayable Podcast. This is Josh Shonafinger coming to you through your headphones. And on this episode, Jack Painter and myself will be talking to recently retired New South Wales great Trent Copeland to talk about his career, the ins and outs of all the state squads that have just dropped over the last couple of weeks And of course, the Ashes. Can't wait. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here's Copes. Yes, we're very lucky on this edition of the Unplayable Podcast to be joined by a recently retired great of Australian cricket. He's looking very fresh at the minute. That must be the retirement speaking. Trent Copeland, (laughs) welcome to the Unplayable Podcast. Thanks for having me, boys. Yeah, uh, retirement is brilliant. I've been able to spend a lot of time with family, um, two little children, my wife, Kim, um, be home, be able to say yes to, hey, next Sunday, do you want to go do this? Yes, I can do that. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, it's been brilliant. So, yeah, refreshed. I'm doing a bit of study, finishing off my MBA and um, watching on for the India Test Series, numerous other bits of cricket, the IPL, things like that. Um, so yeah, I'm a cricket nuffy still. That's not going to change. <laughs> <laughs> so were you able to do any study while you were playing or you've just put it totally on hold until you finished? No, I did an undergrad degree before I started playing. Um, and I mean, a unique scenario for me starting my career. So I had the opportunity to be you know, coaching for a living, um, going to uni, doing an undergrad degree and basically finish that by the time that I'd started playing um, professional cricket. So um, did some bits and pieces throughout my playing career of 14 years and then, yeah, just sort of had to tick off the rest of my MBA, um, I guess, to, you know, fulfil the life goals and career goals that I want in business afterwards. But you've also been pretty busy in retirement, obviously a lot of commentary stuff happening at the minute for you and also you've been pretty prominent in the super coach scene as well. Uh, yes, Supercoach has been there the whole way, actually, uh, both NRL and AFL. I'm probably, despite being, you know, in loose terms, an expert in NRL, I'm undoubtedly better at the AFL game. And I, but I love, anyone who knows me knows that I love all sports, um, you know, domestically, I lo- but I really love NBA, NFL, you know, the trades, the, um, you know, we're seeing the playoffs right now in the NBA. It's just big time every day, the biggest stars in the world on show and they, they aim up in the pressure moments. That's what I love. And, I, well, I just wanted to ask you about the commentary as well and the Channel 7 stuff that you've been um, rolling with over the last few seasons. How did you get involved in that and was it always a goal of yours to get into that sort of space? Oh, unique scenario really. And Wind back, I've only had, in my entire career, I only had one serious injury. It was after our 2013 Shield win down at Marnica and went and played county cricket. And I'd played and bowled a lot of overs. Anyone who's sort of followed loosely my career knows that I bowled a lot of overs at the best of times. But that year I was doing things like finish Shield season, that win, 
played grade finals literally the day after our grade premiership um, in Sydney, fly to the UK the day after that, start the shield, uh, the county season for North Ants. Wow. Played basically up until our you know season was starting here for New South Wales and came back and had a, a back injury, um, a stress fracture in my lower back. So that year I missed completely and I got an out-of-the-blue phone call a week before the Adelaide test, which was tragic circumstances, the Phil Hughes um, sort of memorial in the morning and um, I got a call from ABC to jump on a plane and sort of travel around doing commentary with uh, Jim Maxwell, Drew Morfitt. Um, they knew nothing about me and <laughs> I had never done anything like that before and I met the produ- executive producer, Ned Hall, on the morning of the test match having just flown in. He shook my hand and said, G'day, Trent. You'll be on the first half hour of the ceremony with uh, Jim Maxwell. Then you'll do the first half hour of play. Uh, my advice, when the bowler starts his run-up, let Jim do the work. No swearing. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so at that point, I was an ABC broadcaster. Um, yeah, I could have been there to send out all sorts of political messages and uh, <laughs> you know, cause a fuss. But that was really – I'd been doing the super coach stuff in the background, bits and pieces – in interviews myself, um, but also um, spending time on the back page uh, for Fox. Bill and Bowles was a show that I loved because it was all sports. Um, so I was sort of getting touch points, but it wasn't until that summer where I got the chance to sit, best seat in the house, watching international cricket and talking about the intricacies, the tactics, the the where and why and what is happening um, that really sort of sparked a, a love for that sort of thing. And then, yeah, Channel 7 taking over the broadcast with Fox. Um, they sort of pinpointed a few guys that they wanted um, as part of their, I guess, starting off, how are we going to win the public over to say that, A, we're invested in this, B, we want to do a good job, um, and C, we've got really good people doing it. Um, and thankfully, um, Chris Jones, who's now the executive producer at 7, um, Dave Barham, who was in charge of running the show at that point, and um, Ricky Ponting sort of picked me out as someone that could maybe do this role. And, yeah, I mean, it was a tough scenario at the time because it clashed with a Shield game. Um, anyone who knows me, I've said this a few times, um, bowl a lot of overs, uh, but that baggy blue means everything to me. And, um, you know, that time and scenario... There was many nights that I was sleepless. There was times where I was in tears in front of senior staff members and teammates um, having to figure out what to do. Um, Still doesn't sit all that well that that was the scenario, but I can tell you now, five years into the broadcast stuff with Channel 7, I am so passionate about it. I think I do a reasonable job at it, um, and it's bloody good fun, and I want to do it for a long time to come. Did – like? Well, we would agree that you do a fantastic job. It's uh, very enjoyable to listen to. Uh, now that you've retired, uh, could we see you sort of, you're already pretty prominent throughout the summer at the moment, but could we see you expand potentially overseas opportunities? Are you looking at, at doing that kind of stuff? Yes, I am. Um, in short, I, I've not been able to, I mean, scheduling was, has been a nightmare, trying to juggle first-class cricket, um, two children, being a husband, um, you know, trying to be the best person I can be, along with at the liberty of the scheduling gods every summer. You know, they drop down the schedule and my first thing, everyone else is, oh, wow, let's book tickets to this. 
And I'm like, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> this clash, this day, how am I going to get from this place on this flight? Um, you know, I've got to tell at the time Phil Jakes about this session, this session, this session, how can we juggle that? Um, that's all gone. I can now just, you know, uh, live my life how I want to live it essentially. Um, and that's a big part of it. So I think, yes, I'd love to um, go and explore. I think things like World Cups um, are going to be really interesting. IPL um, is something I'm really passionate about and, and watch a lot of as well as the 100. Um, but even things like, you know, county cricket, the Vitality Blast, um, and then other T20 tournaments around the place and even, you know, external test matches. All of that interests me and I think, you know, being a more well-rounded broadcaster is a big thing in my horizon. Um, that's why I've done things like the Olympics with Channel 7 um, and even doing more of the hosting roles as opposed to just being an analyst. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a realist. I'm not Ricky Ponting. I'm not walking into every commentary box around the world and being, you know, this guy that can just pinpoint everything. Um, I'm a guy who's played yeah, a couple of test matches, played a long time in the game, um, but I need to earn my way. Um, so I think being able to host, being able to broadcast generally um, and even calling games um, I think is going to be, you know, where I live, um, you know, moving forward. You touched on a few of the things you've been able to do in retirement a bit earlier. Um, just sort of explain to us the decision at the end of last season and what led you to uh, call time at the end of last summer. Well, I mean, it was an interesting time. It's been a tough couple of years. Well, when I say tough couple of years, probably tough 14 months at New South Wales where sort of things came to a head in sense of head coach, um, playing roster, what we were going to do with how we um, – do particularly with our shield side and, and the success that we've had in the past, you know, getting to Christmas, I wasn't picked in the team at the start of the year, which was a bit of a shock to me. Um, didn't necessarily agree with some of the rationale there, um, be it from, you know, whoever it was making those calls in the selection panel. Um, but we hit Christmas, no wins from six games. Um, and, you know, I'm playing, you know, grade cricket, second 11 cricket, um, doing these other things as well as family and really just still absolutely loving life and, you know, being successful in those lower levels, um, but still not getting a crack where I wanted to be able to make a difference. Um, it was a bit of a lingering thing there at the start of last season anyway. And then all of this sort of coupled together, um, just had a few discussions with my wife and, you know, sort of internally in my own head and, um, and then it was probably with three games to go um, in the Shield season, I was in the squad for all the games after Christmas. But I thought to myself, you know what? I just really want to make this, you know, a red-hot crack to the end of the year and show that, you know, I'm going out on my terms. I'm still absolutely good enough to compete at the level. Probably physically could have had another couple of years, I think. Um, but, um, yeah, it was a... In the end, the right decision, not an easy decision, if that makes sense. We have seen that fast bowlers sort of prolonging their career of late. We've got Peter Siddle, 38. Uh, Jackson Bird just come back to New South Wales. I think he's 37. Jimmy Anderson into the into the 40s now. There was no sort of desire to, to keep playing like last year was the, the right time? Yeah, it was. And, I mean, if I was reading the tea leaves as well, uh, you know, the chairman of selectors who didn't pick me for the first couple of games you know the last thing I wanted to do was 
there was still a, a really good role for me there within the group to teach and nurture and um, you know put the arm around when things weren't going great. But I mean, I also don't want to be 37 years old going into a 38 year old season, not being able to be the competitor and you know the difference maker for New South Wales that I always want to be. Um, and I still think that I was that when I was given the opportunity this year. Um, I never wanted that to slip and be forced into retirement or cut from a list. Um, I wanted to be able to make that decision on my own and um, I guess make sure that the New South Wales bowling environment was in a situation where they could then move forward and succeed without me. Um, that maybe didn't hit as well as I would have wanted, um, but I'm excited by the talent and certainly the prospect of the, the group turning things around. It's been a couple of months since your call to retire. Have you had a chance to reflect on your career? If we just look at your uh, career in terms of raw numbers, third most wickets for New South Wales in the Shield, a Shield title, a one-day cup title, a century, which means you can always say that you're an all-rounder, I guess, 21 five-wicket holes and three tests. I mean, it's a pretty good CV if you look at it in raw numbers. Yeah, big time. And I mean, I'm, I have had a you know, a chance to reflect on it, particularly the couple of weeks after I retired where, you know, I was doing numerous things like this, talking about my career, some of the highlights, things like that. Um, I think the thing that sticks out is that if there's a message out there for any young kid, it's that, or anyone really, you don't ever know what you're capable of. You, you set your goals high. Um, up until I was 20, I was a wicketkeeper batsman. You know, it's... And I hadn't been a part of the pathways, you know, in national championship teams or rookie contracts for New South Wales. It was, you know, I was playing in the city country matches and probably just on the outskirts as a batter at that point um, for 17s and 19s. But, you know, at no stage was I in the mix to be in there as a bowler. So um, keep training, keep doing different things, keep expanding your horizons and you just never know what, what can happen because, you know, I'm, I'm a good example of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the first three years of my professional sporting career, I'm going to, I'm going to look back at that so fondly for the rest of my life because I can't even fathom how it happened. You know, it was great cricket success. My club, St. George, we had won four competitions in three, uh, in the space of five years and largely a pretty collective group that, um, came from winning under 21 competitions. And really, I didn't even realize how great that was an environment for me to be learning. Um, winning big finals in grade cricket, getting exposed to situations where, shit, I don't know what to do here. You know, I don't know how to get this guy out or these two out on a flat wicket. What do I do? Um, you know, and good players around me like Graham Rummins, who was captain at the time, uh, Moses Enriquez. Steve Casalino, numerous others that went on to play first-class cricket. Um, and then when I hit, you know, I was uncontracted for New South Wales. There was probably, you know, think of this list of names in front of me. Lee, Bracken, Clark, Cameron, Burt Cockley, you know, numerous others. It, it was a situation where I was miles off playing for New South Wales at the start of the season. Come January, I was in and on a Wednesday, got a call while I was coaching. Um, Brian Tabor said, uh, all right, Copes, you need to be in at the SCG tomorrow for a training session. And Friday, you'll be making your debut at the SCG against Queensland. And I'm like, 
hang on a minute, I've just got to leave this coaching session. Um, just hang on a sec, out the back. And um, obviously, tears in my eyes. I couldn't believe it. You got to come in and meet Matthew Mott, the coach, and Simon Cadditch, the captain, this afternoon <laughs> and pick up your gear. So it was all a real whirlwind. And then obviously, a few wickets on debut. And um, within sort of 18, 24 months, it was a test debut. And it, I honestly can't tell you how it happened. You mentioned it earlier, uh, wicketkeeper batter until you were 20. Tell us a little bit about your, your journey because it's quite um, it's not the usual path we see these days through the, through the pathway. Tell us you know, how you came to be at St. George as a wicketkeeper batter and then turned into a, into a fast bowler. Yeah, so if you don't know, I grew up in Bathurst out in the country about three hours west of Sydney. Um, all through the pathway, I was involved, right? So I was playing country cricket tournaments, loved the game as I do now, nothing's changed there. Um, my parents, uh, my stepdad and my mum used to drive me. I used to leave last period on a Wednesday from school, drive to Sydney to get there by 6 p.m., have a two-hour training session at the indoor centre at the SCG, and then they would drive me home. You know, that was the level of commitment from my parents. I'm so thankful to them for that, um, you know, let alone driving all around the countryside um, to give me opportunities. But I was a wicketkeeper batter. Um, I had bowled a little bit in under 12s, under 13s, that sort of stuff, but never bowled in men's cricket and any of these sort of things um, other than at training. So it's a very different environment now with wangers and you know, coaches only, all the batters that are doing their hitting. Once they've done their net, they stay padded up. They sort of wang occasionally, but largely do their talking, game planning, then get involved at the back end of the session rather than, going in and having a bowl. So, I mean, my situation was I was playing hockey at a, a pretty high level um, in Sydney in the Premier League and things like that for St. George. Um, when I first came down, I was going to uni, playing Premier League hockey and third grade cricket. And I was opening the batting. I came to St. George because I had two mates from my school in Bathurst that came here. Um, but my first exposure to grade cricket was actually quite funny. Um, told this story to the grade cricketer boys a little while ago. Uh, I walked into, uh, you know, pre-season, that was unreal, but this is the first game for St. George. I'm opening the batting with a club legend. He's one of the leading run scorers of all time, Warwick Hayes. And we walk out the bat. Um, we've lost a toss. It's pretty green uh, playing against um, Randwick Petersham in Sydney. We walk out there. I got through the first over as tentative as you like, playing, missing everywhere. Uh, big LBW shout. I got through that. I looked down, Mark Center. And I was like, Whoa. <sighs> walk down to the middle, look up, no one there. Warwick standing on his bat at the other end, turning around, facing the other way in his own world. And I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. Walk back down the other end. I was like, what is going on here? How do you play cricket in Sydney? I've just been absolutely snubbed. I was ready for a glove punch, you know, well done. Come on, next over, that sort of thing. Um, little did I know that was one of Waz's uh, mannerisms that he – it was only him. So I managed to get through that moment. Um, but largely the keeping giving away, just to finish that story, I'd broken all my fingers playing hockey and cricket, literally broken or dislocated nine of the ten. Um, and in those days it was Nathan Pillen, our first-grade keeper, who played a lot for New South Wales. Uh, down in Victoria, then Kev Pillay, who played first grade for a lot um, for us um, as the first and second grade keepers. So you didn't get picked in the next grade um, unless someone was either at representative cricket or at a wedding <laughs> or injured. So I gave it away just to focus on the six batting spots. 
um, and a bit of progression planning. But um, yeah, it all it all happened pretty rapidly after that. After your retirement, we put up um, some highlights of your career in the Shield, and we noticed that there are a lot of wickets that fell by batters, you know, shouldering arms, not playing a shot. Uh, was that sort of a plan that you always always knew you were in the game with batters misjudging your deliveries? Well, I think given that, um, you know, I'm not 150 k's an hour, um, I'm certainly not a scary bowler by any means, other than maybe when I get frustrated and start getting in people's faces, um, just that competitive streak, um, which Kim now has to deal with while we play Monopoly and Scrabble <laughs> and things like that. Um, so my my aggression, in a sense, was through skill and, you know, tactical build-up or reading what was happening and, um, you know, it was never a perfect scenario, but it was one of those things where um, if you look at any of my deliveries in isolation, you may not think, you know, it was anything special. There's a couple of balls that go wide outside the off stump to the keeper. But at no stage was there never a plan that I was working towards. You know, it and much like the, you know, the Jimmy Anderson, you mentioned a couple of other guys like Peter Siddle, Jackson Bird, all very similar in the sense that, you know, it has to be, angles on the crease, different types of seam positions, um, outswing. At the start, I was very much all outswing and big inswing. Um, and then I progressed to, you know, wobble seam, um, all of that sort of stuff and, and brought in a bouncer, which um, I guess is another message that I wish I knew I could tell myself when I was 21. Um, who cares how fast you are? A bouncer is an effective delivery. And at times I even loved it when a guy stood back, smacked it out of the park because the ego that came with that, thinking, oh, yeah, go on then, try it again. You know, it was an asset that I could then use moving forward. Um, things like that was, you know, where I lived and I had to do that, um, particularly playing in New South Wales largely. At, um, sometimes we got green ones at the SCG, but largely it was, <laughs> you know, flat, docile, um, abrasive wickets where, you know, SCG, Bankstown, Dremoyne, um, it really had to be skill execution. Um, and if you bowl that in swinger that you want to hit the outside of off stump and get an LB or bowled, you probably get one crack at it being effective before the batter's sort of aware that it's coming. Um, so it was on me to be executing that. Control versus speed. A lot of talk in Australian cricket media is you got to bowl 150 Ks to play for Australia. Is there still room in the game for that control bowler or is it all going to be 150 Ks moving forward? Oh, don't get me started on this. Don't get me started. Um, look, my simplistic answer is there is no replacement for ball movement. So, yes, when the ball isn't moving, it is important that, you know, pace or fear or tactics um, really is what you've got in your armory and that's how you can break through along with a spinner where spin – um, can take the place of swing or seam. Um, at no stage anywhere around the world is movement not the most important thing and secondary to that, length control. Having a batter caught on the crease, um, the ability to not have them committed forward or back, um, those things are far more important than what pace you bowl. Um, and uh, there are endless amounts of examples of that. Look, I think where it comes from is, uh, look, and I say this nicely, the majority of sports media in this country that cover cricket and around the world are batters. And when you're a batter, what is the most threatening at times? A lot, a lot of the time it's pace. Um, 
And certainly in Australian conditions where it gets flat a lot in test cricket, as opposed to shield cricket where there's probably a bit more life in the wickets, pace is essential. Um, so that's what we look for. You know, I think the common misconception is that it's everything, whereas we're really searching for both. If we can have both, which we have in abundance in our test side of the moment, Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark, Scotty Boland, numerous others, it's pace and skill um, and movement. What I don't want to see ever is Australia just go to the, you know, two or three bowlers that just bowl fast and that's our asset. Um, you know, one is pretty important, um, but, you know, it's it's always about movement and length control, in my opinion, irrelevant of conditions. And I think, you know, you look to the Indian quicks where traditionally it's like you have to have airspeed. Um, Muhammad Shami, Bhuvneshwar Kumar, numerous others, Muhammad Siraj in recent times, it's skill, length control, and when they execute a delivery, it is perfect. You talked a little bit earlier in terms of the first three years of your career being, you know, whirlwind, uh, first-class debut, or you went from grade cricket, first-class debut into the test side, pretty relatively short space. Um, on that, do you think, um, you know, given that the airspeed you did bowl with, that was a bit of a disadvantage in sort of only playing that that test series? Do you sort of have any regrets that, you know, that they went for that? Far, those faster options down the track given the first class career you went on to build? Um, yeah, look, it, if I'm looking back at it, I think I was you know, 23, 24 at the time where I debuted in test cricket. I was 15 times the bowler in my late 20s and early 30s. And, and even, you know, the 2019 Ashes, uh, I think, you know, we'd just come off the back of a Shield final 50-plus wickets here in Australia where, you know, I'd never bowl better. Um, and particularly with a juke ball post-Christmas. Um, but look, I played that test series and we won. I didn't realise at the time, obviously, Nathan Lyon and myself there for the first time. Uh, we debuted in the same game. Uh, we all know how those careers have gone. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, a little differently. But we didn't realise the significance of winning a test series in Asia um, and the quality of performance that we put out there and to be a part of that, you know, really now looking back at it, it was really special. If you want to take a guess at the five test matches after I got dropped, um, Vernon Philander debut. Yeah, uh, that was pretty friendly for medium fast bowlers uh, or medium slow, <laughs> I like to call myself. Uh, then we get Joburg where it's, you know, all about pace and bounce and uh, friendliness for quicks. Then we come back to Australia, it's Gabba, Hobart, Wacker. So, I mean, if I could have hung on for maybe five more tests, uh, things might have been a little different. But there was a few blokes when we returned to Australia. One in South Africa was named Pat Cummins. Uh, and then after that, it was Pattinson, Hazelwood, Stark all came in. So, look, I can't begrudge some of the greats of our game having come in and taken my spot. You have to tip your hat to those sort of guys, don't you? Um, and with the rise of Big Bash and T20 cricket, Next to your name in Crick Info, just three T20 matches. Was there ever a desire to put more time and effort into honing your T20 game given the rise in popularity? Oh, I mean, I wish financially that I did that. Yeah, certainly would have been uh, beneficial to be, you know, being able to be in Big Bash nonstop. Um, the way the contracting system now is in Australia, it certainly benefits um, players that are able to play all formats rather than just be a Sheffield Shield one-day cricketer um, for your state. So, 
let alone the, the stuff external to um, Australia. So, look, I, I do a little bit, but, you know, I was built on um, my love of test cricket, my love of the tactics and skill execution, and that was partly temperament was, you know, and the ability to withstand pressure for long periods of time, um, but also that thrill of day four, game on the line, you're all mentally and physically stuffed, day five in test cricket, being able to be the one that comes up with that delivery that breaks the game open or that wins your team a game really was where my passion and, you know, drive lived um, and that was never going to change. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of wish that I grew up slogging sixes and, and things like that. But, uh, look, there's a, a real absence and a bit of a concern from my point of view of, you know, what that does to our long format cricket in the future. Might put you on the spot here, Trent. Do you have a uh, favourite wicket that you've you've taken across your career? Uh, favourite wicket? Um, there was one that sticks out and I give him crap about it all the time was Mike Hussey left one in a Shield game uh, out of Blacktown against WA and that was one of those ones where it was away, 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 turned it around and came back and hit the outside of off stump. Uh, in a Sheffield Shield game. And that was in the midst of Mr. Cricket at his peak. Um, so, uh, Josh, as you well know, he's now Mr. Cricket, Mr. Supercoach. I spent a lot of time with him. He's the analyst for Fox uh, in the lab. So uh, every time I walk past him and he's looking a bit chipper and, you know, swanning around, getting all the love, I was like, hey, Huss, don't leave one. <laughs> so, but there's been lots. I, I find it hard to, you know, narrow it down, but. That's always one that sticks out for jovial reasons. Is there much uh, much competition between the two two labs? You've obviously got Channel Seven. He's got uh, Fox Fox Cricket. Big time, yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm out in Hussey's office a lot of the time. I have to wait until Huss has done his you know his big world feed presentation. Here's the pitch. I'm standing off camera, uh, just waiting to get my two minutes to do you know something on the pitch, something analysis wise, and um, yeah, we give each other a lot of stick and. Um, you know, in a, in a really healthy and, and funny way. And I mean, to be honest, it's a really collaborative approach to, you know, hoping to present to the public the best possible avenue to understanding the game. So very much, I'm sure if people are watching both, you may see um, some similar trains of thoughts. And largely, we, we watch the game the same way. We're just passionate about it um, and oftentimes see the game for the same reasons and maybe the same things that lead up to a wicket or same tactics at play from batters that try and ex, um, exploit certain things. So, yeah, I love it, to be honest. We're oftentimes two doors away in a hallway in the production area. So uh, it's good fun. Now, in, as you've said many, many times, you're very passionate about the Sheffield Shield and cricket in general. So you're not going to be taking your eye off it come next season. The, the state lists have just dropped in the last week mm. or two. And... All the teams have announced their ins and outs. So we might just run you through the changes, get your thoughts on each state, how they're shaping up for the coming summer. Jack, do you want to kick us off with uh, Copes' old side, New South Wales? Might, yes. Um, big inclusion there, obviously, Jackson Jackson Bird. Um, a few, uh, Chris Green as well had standout uh, uh, debut season and uh, a couple of Premier cricketers, Blake McDonald, Ross Pawson and uh, Young under Australia, under 19, Captain Joel Davies. What do you make of the, the bird inclusion, uh, Trent, and uh, sort of filling a, a role there, I guess, that you played in mentoring young young bowlers as well? Yeah, that's going to be a huge role for him. And I think uh, I certainly 
heard, um, not spoken directly to Birdie, but there's an aspiration there, I think, to be a coach in the future. And um, no doubt being home on the northern beaches where he grew up with his family, um, he's here with the Sixers as well. I think it made sense. Um, and I think he's going to play an important role. Um, you know, maybe not every game. Uh, my assumption would be that the sort of Chris Tremaine, Jackson Bird, similar um, sort of game planning may well, judging off this year, certainly myself and Tremors um, were sort of in a similar box. Um, but uh, largely he's experienced one of the greatest bowls in Sheffield Shield cricket in history. Um, and any time he pulls on a baggy blue, um, is going to be an asset to New South Wales. And there's a couple of those other guys you mentioned. Joel Davies, really exciting. Blake McDonald, the one I played grade cricket with Blake, a lot of second level cricket for ACT New South Wales. And he's an absolute ripper. Uh, he debuted in Shield cricket and he's come a long way in Shield cricket, but he is the guy that could tear open a big bash game or a one day game. Um, so keeping an eye out for him. 177 not out against the touring West Indians last year and then got his yeah. chance in half century in the final game of the Shield season. There's a few young openers there. Uh, Blake Nikotaris, Ryan Hackney, uh, got his maiden century in the last game of the season. Which way do you see them going there in terms of someone to partner Dan Hughes or potentially you know going with two young guys longer term? Well, I think if you take a look at the Premier Cricket results in Sydney, Ryan Hackney won his team the entire competition. So it wasn't just that 100 in that last Shield game. It was a month-long stretch where he scored 100 in a second 11 game in the lead-up to that Shield game. Then he scored 300s and one monster in the in the grade grand final. I think he is – he's always been – you know, I mentioned before the absence of temperament and um, that forward defence, the hunger like the – think Ed Cowans of the world. He is that guy. So – that form, I hope, springboards a really big off-season and then into, I think, he played with a level of confidence and bravado at the end of the year where I see in grade cricket all the time and second 11. That carried into the last year game and if that carries forward, he and Daniel Hughes are going to be really difficult to deal with uh, as a combination. So uh, I would say that that's where it lands at the moment. But Blake Nikotaris um, has the talent to be an all-format cricketer and, and take that head on as well. So it's going to be interesting. And there's one signing, of course, at New South Wales who might have a bigger impact than anyone else, and that's Greg Shippard as head mm. coach. He's been officially confirmed. What are your dealings with Shippy in the past and what do you know about him? Oh, there's been a lot, actually. I've known Shippy for a long time. Um, he's uh, a student of the game still at his age. Uh, I think a very different coach now. I don't think he'd mind me saying from his early days in Victoria where he was chasing blokes down the tunnel um, after they got out, things like that. But he... I think the Sixers has been fantastic for him as a coach, but also he's been fantastic for the environment. Um, a really good knowledge of the Blues senior players via the Sixers. Um, and I think my opinion loosely, and I, you know, I say this with the utmost respect to the, the past coaches that we've had at New South Wales, we've got a lot of cricketers that are trying to figure out who they are as people at the moment. And we need a coach, I guess, that, is able to sit there confidently knowing who he is, his methodology that he backs in, and there is zero doubt there. So I think as a head coach, um, you know, Phil Jakes had some really good strengths and his passion for the Blues, um, his ability to talk batting and game planning and things like that. You know, he was a fantastic coach as well. Um, but I think Shippy might bring just that level of no uncertainty, no different messaging. It is... Purely, this is how we do things, 
these are the KPIs we want to tick off. Um, and largely, if someone needs some advice, some counsel on their game, I think he's got a long-standing uh, history of being able to find the way uh, for cricketers to get through that. Can the Blues do it? Do you think can they turn it around pretty pretty quickly next season? Yeah, I think so. It's going to be interesting around captaincy. I think um, you know Curtis Patterson obviously has been captain for a little while. Moses Enriquez did the last game of the year. I don't know whether someone like Moses wants to do the captaincy full time. Um, whether we move to some of the younger guys like the Jack Edwards. Um, the jacket was Jason Sanger, Mould, who are undoubtedly future leaders, fantastic people. I really also want them to just be the best cricketers they can be and be dominant first-class cricketers before bats maybe thrust upon them. I don't know the best answer, um, but that may be one thing that um, needs to be sorted first. Um, but ultimately, the talent in the room, but New South Wales are always going to be competitive. This was a shocking year, make no mistake about it, but... Next year, there's no reason why we wouldn't win every game. And that's with the same playing group, different results, aren't unfathomable, I think. Queensland, they've got the son of a gun returning to the state, Ben McDermott from Tasmania. And they've also signed up Aaron Jane, who played a couple of matches last season. They've let go Sam Hazlitt and Kane Richardson is going to pursue T20 opportunities. Thoughts on those changes for the Bulls? They didn't make a final last year, which is you know unusual for them of recent years. Can they hit back and return to one of the finals? Yeah, I think they can. And if I'm looking at it, Queensland have an incredible amount of Australian representatives at the moment. And that India tour away really, um, I guess, took out the sting of their pursuit for a trophy in all formats last year, just with timing. And you know that's something that New South Wales, Victoria. Um, and in more recent times, WA have had to really deal with it's let's build our best team without any Australian players to be a dominant force. And then when those guys are back, it's a bonus and we are unbeatable, you know, things like that, where Queensland probably got stung a little bit at the back end of last year with um, needing to blood some guys all at once. Um, and then Matty Kuhneman also got taken out of that team. Uh, what a fantastic story that is. Um, but when he goes out of the team, as well as you know, Nisa goes out and a few others. Obviously, the whole batting lineup. It's uh, it's tough to deal with. The Redbacks, after a couple of disappointing seasons, had a really good season last year. Lots of positive signs for them. They've brought in Jake Fraser McGurk from Victoria. Calvin Smith gets a contract again after having a few years off their list. And Jake Weatherold has actually made the move down to Tasmania. So a few batting changes there for the Redbacks. A few batting changes, and whilst it's not a list change, a long-term signing of Spencer Johnson, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Um, saw him break out in the big bash for the Brisbane Heat. At that time, I remember commentating on a few of those games for seven and thinking to myself, this guy doesn't have a contract You know, past this season. Every state should be getting at a you know six-foot-five, 145K an hour um, fast bowler. Yes, he's had some health issues with the feet in, in the past, but... You know, if he can string it together, it could be anything. And we saw that, didn't we, at the back end of the Shield summer. So he's exciting. And I think if you think back maybe five to seven years to the South Australian bowling unit with Sayers at full flight, with a few others around him like Frankie Worrell, Joe Many, and numerous others, that could be what South Australia have in their possession right now. Buckingham, a few others that are really starting to fly. Where's Agar? We know has played representative cricket. 
Ben Menenti as their player of the year. It's a really solid group that I think South Australia can build a foundation with. And, you know, it's it's a nice flyer to take on someone like Jake Fraser McGurk. I think if that pays off in the next two to three years, then that's as, as good a decision as South Australia can make as a, as a listing um, decision. So, look, the talent's there. Whether he comes to fruition or not, we'll see. Skipping ahead to Tasmania, probably their biggest uh, thing is their outs this for heading into next season. Uh, Peter Siddle, Jackson Bird, and and um, Ben McDermott, as we mentioned. Jake Weatherold slotting in and they've added Paddy Dooley. Where do you see someone like Jake Weatherold slotting in the batting order given you know they've got Tim Ward and Caleb Jewell who have both played for Australia A in the last few months, um, strong opening combination. Can Weatherold play in the same team as those guys and bat down the order? Yes, I think he can. And the interesting question, I think, would be now that Jordan Silk has slid down to number five permanently and really taken on the captaincy and done a fantastic job there, it'll be interesting to see what they do with that top order and the number three spot in particular. Caleb Jewell, I think, is very capable of batting at number three um, if they wanted to go that way. Um, The other thing is I think Jake Weatherall probably needed not just a change in state and and a refresher in his mind just to find that love of the game again. But maybe batting at five or six is the freedom that he needs. Think of someone like Bo Webster, what's happened with his career. Um, You know, he was that number three that they invested so much time into at the start. Um, But like Jake Weatherald was in Hobart in particular, getting out a lot of the same ways, trying to take guys on early, not making good decisions. So maybe playing with freedom down the order is the way forward for Jake. and certainly in white ball cricket, we know what he's capable of. So that's a, also a nice flyer for them. I think if Nathan Ellis is absent with any white ball tournaments, the World Cup, thing like that, I think they might be in a bit of strife with the bowling stocks. But, um, of course, that's an opportunity for the next crop to to come through, like your Ian Carlisles um, and guys like that. Well, and speaking of quicks, Victoria have made a few changes in that department as well. Peter Siddle comes back after a couple of years down in Tassie and they've let go of uh, Zach Evans, Brody Couch and those sort of guys. Aaron Fincher has retired and a few other additions as well in the Tom Rogers, Liam Blackford who played under 19s and a couple of other rookies. Victoria, what do you think of those changes, Copes? There's a bit happening there. Well, there is a bit happening there and I must say at the start of last season I still in my head talking, you know, NBA terms, they were very much in a rebuild. And and it was one of those things where you look amongst their group and there was still a lot of senior players floating around. They didn't have access to the guys like Maxwell and things like that. But my goodness, after Christmas, they started playing some really, really good cricket. And most importantly, I started to see things from Will Sutherland and Mitch Perry that I hadn't seen before. This was... Yeah, they'd been skillful at times, been successful at the level, but playing against them in Albury, just watching on and then even into the final, there was a different element of kiss off the wicket, um, a confidence, and I guess it brought in maybe a couple of percent on their pace as well. Um, But those two guys took huge strides forward, Will Sutherland even as captain. Um, So I'm really optimistic if you're a Victorian fan um, that it's an exciting time coming forward. And, you know, at full strength, does Peter Siddle get into this lineup? You know, that's the strength of that bowling unit. And, you know, I think um, Scott Boland, obviously, whenever he's around, um, it's a it's a bloody good unit with the new sensation that is Todd Murphy, who um, anyone who's seen him since he was 
sort of 17, 18, the first thing I saw at a spin cam up in um, Brisbane uh, was he just lets it go out of the fingers like Gaz. And, you know, he's now obviously had experience playing test cricket in India. John Holland is now off that contract list. It's all Todd Murphy. What were you doing at a spin camp in Brisbane where you think you're making the switch to spin after doing a bit of keeping, a bit of batting, a bit of quick bowling? Yeah, at that point, uh, there was numerous people who told me I bowled too slow and I should take up spin um, or even that what I get through the air was drift rather than swing. Um, so, no, I was up there for a um, Aussie and coaching camp and things like that. But, um, yeah, it, uh, some of these guys you just see and you think he's going to be something and, yeah, I'm not surprised. Now, have you got any thoughts on how to beat WA, how to dislodge them from the top of the domestic competitions? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm, I get on really well with B, uh, Adam Bogus, and I think, you know, Bo Casson, who was an assistant coach in New South Wales, I played cricket with him as well. I don't know how to knock them off their perch at the moment, just how they're walking around Australian cricket. They are winning everything. And look, it's coming largely on the back of guys that are part of their domestic setup full time. You know, you're talking guys that are playing every game. And whenever they bring in, this is maybe some of the the questions I had necessarily rather than statements to New South Wales cricket was when we have young kids debut, normally, you know, they debut, they keep their spot, their talent drives them forward. And then they're next minute they're on to playing for Australia. At the moment, that's what's happening in WA. Um, you know, and you think of guys that have come into their ranks, think Cooper Connolly in the big bash, what a moment for that young man. And, and Teague Wiley and a few others that are not just playing in domestic cricket, but they are playing to dominate and win games. So it's a bloody strong unit they've got over there, deep bowling unit as well, so they can withstand their injuries. And, um, I mean, imagine if they had Jai Richardson this year. That would have been ridiculous. As you mentioned, deep bowling lineup, and they've added to it as well uh, for next season. Liam Haskett, who was around the Shield squad at the end of last season, then a couple of young under-19 quicks from the Pilbara, uh, Marley Beardman and Josh Vernon. Have you seen any of those guys? And is there anyone? I have, and I'm pretty glad that I'm retired. I'm no interest <laughs> in batting to a few of those young fellas. Uh, I've heard, particularly the two boys that are from out in the sticks, uh, a lot of promise from Anthony Clark, who is the under-19s coach for Australia. He's part of our setup at New South Wales. I get along well with him. Really good tactical mind, talking cricket. Uh, and he saw them at an indoor session up in Brizzy off a couple of steps rolling out 130 plus and thought to himself, wow, okay, we've got a couple here. And and then you add to that, I mean, Lance Morris over in WA. Um, yes, they've got certainly plenty of additions there that are going to wreak havoc in first-class cricket for some time. Who is the hardest player to bowl to in the shield at the minute? Well, that's a good question. Um, I guess that... There's a few different ones. I think there's a couple that take the game away from you by, you know, just their aggression and their ability to hit any ball where they want it. Um, Cameron Bancroft is one that's up there that we've had good tussles for a long time. Um, he found a little groove last year where I think he found the hybrid between his big bash play and his shield play. And I think came a little bit more at the bowlers in Sheffield Shield cricket, which I think worked in his favour. He's certainly up there. Um, outside of that, it's probably the guys that have um, been around for quite some time. Um, I find Nick Maddinson really hard to bowl to um, when he's going in that 
take the game away from you mold. Um, and then outside of that, I've got to say Marcus Harris. Just had that methodology that once he had you, it was very difficult to get him to go. Um, so those are the guys that stick out. No surprises that they've all played representative cricket. Um, and there's a few young kids around that are starting to find their groove as well. I'd love to pick your brain ahead of the Ashes. Mitchell Stark, you mentioned there, he played one test in the 2019 Ashes. Um, you'd obviously see him as crucial to Australia's plans heading into this series. Yeah, interesting one. Uh, there was some, I mean, even Josh Hazelwood missing out of a few tests in that series was, you know, we, we are blessed with depth and, um, you know, it's obviously a difficult decision for the selectors on which way they go. But at times I think we can overcomplicate it, but we've probably got the luxury now in a five-test Ashes series to pick and choose for the odd test match rather than just being our best three quicks that go with Nathan Lyon every time. Um, Josh Hazelwood coming back off some interrupted cricket. Um, great to see him back in the IPL and bowling well. I think all of those guys are going to be key. I know that someone like Scott Bowling at the moment is bowling the house down at camps in Brizzy. Um, I think he's going to be an absolute nightmare to face in English conditions. Um, so he's going to be a real asset. And then you talk, you know, guys that are obviously killing it over there, Michael Neeser and Sean Abbott, um, that were just added to the squad as well. So um, we're flush with options uh, as well as all-rounders like Cameron Green, Mitch Marsh uh, and the like. So a really good opportunity um, for Australia to go over there and really dominate, not just level the series like we did last time, but come home with a win. Just had it in the IPL at the moment. Josh and I were chatting earlier about, you know, Joe Root being in the IPL as well, hasn't played a game, could be playing county cricket. How do you see the preparation for, for an Ashes series with guys playing, you know, the shortest format and potentially just sitting there running the drinks for a whole tournament as well? Well, for Bazball, Joe Root's probably in the perfect scenario. He's uh, he's over there slogging length balls and things like that, reverse sweeping, and as they did so effectively in New Zealand, that series was incredible. Anyone who watched that, um, that's probably one of the most interesting things about this series. I, I don't remember a build-up like this since you know the Great Ashes series. What was it, 2013? Um, you know that amazing summer uh, or English summer over there where. The stadiums were just packed to the rafters and every game went down to the wire. I think this series is going to be different in the sense of how the cricket's played, but it's going to be fascinating to watch who comes out on top. I'm devastated that Jofra won't be there. That would have been a really fun part to watch. But I think Australia's got some interesting things to deal with. They're not playing an interesting decision to not play two matches again. I'm cool with that. To me, though, preparation is going to be very interesting because often we just say, yeah, good luck to them playing that way against our bowlers. Yeah. Good luck. Think back to Headingley when Ben Stokes was doing what he did and took that game away from us. Our bowlers are fantastic. No doubt there. In the momentum shift that goes with a guy doing that, it's very difficult to actually pull yourself away emotionally and then get in the contest and just do what you do. You end up start of sort of chasing and, and our guys who are in that match, no doubt will have learned a lot and will come back bigger and better for it. My idea for preparation is the Vitality Blast and the 100 is about to go on over in England. Guys like Chris Lean are going to be over there for playing for North Ants. Personally, I think they should have a couple of sessions where they get guys in like Chris Lynn, Matty Short coming back from an IPL, 
anyone else that's over there uh, as batters for the 100 and work out, okay, come in for our red ball sessions against our best quicks and just start taking them on. And it's not about, hey, boys, slog it out of the park, but try and score runs as quickly as you can doing what you do because to me, the field isn't going to be your traditional four slips, gully, close mid off and mid on. And what went away from us in that heavenly match was the fields needed to be not just deep point. It needed to be like, okay, 10 off just behind square for the skewed shot at the sight screen that then goes off the outside edge and flies over deep backward point. Because if they hit it in the middle, it's going over you in England. So it's it's an interesting one where I think our preparation maybe for the bowlers only needs to be some guys taking them on and figure out, okay, where are the fielders? Do we need a third man um, once someone actually shows us plan A is not going to work? Or do we just go, you know what, we're just going to be too good. Let's just aim up and plan A is us. But it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? You touched on the on the bowling in terms of combating Baz ball. What do you think about the batting? We haven't necessarily seen other test sides do it yet. Do you combat Baz ball with Baz ball or do you think uh, Mana Smith and Kyle just go about it the way they usually do? No, I think there's been a natural tempo shift with our cricket anyway and it's not to the level of basball and you know I love Brendan McCullum and what he's doing with that team and um, even just the interest in test cricket I love it because that's you know I'm a passionate test supporter and I don't ever want it to go away um, and think it will always be the number one format Um, Australia have probably in the last two years 18 months probably since we won the T20 World Cup started to play a little bit more aggressively, even the likes of Marnus and Steve Smith. Um, so I think we might see, you know, Australia averaging scoring at three and a half, four runs and over, whereas England might go at six. But um, the tempo of these test matches is going to be electric. And you think about, you know, if Broad and Anderson have it on a string in seam-friendly conditions at Edgebaston or wherever it may be, it is going to be unbelievable viewing. I'm going to be very tired. <laughs> As you said, it's going to be an Ashes like no other. Uh, do you want to make a big call and make a prediction on the series? <laughs> yeah, I'll make a big call. Uh, I think it's going to be 4-1 Australia. There you go. I think Australia are going to be too good. In the conditions over there, uh, maybe the confidence that England have, I think <laughs> I was going to say 3-2 because I don't think there'll be any draws unless it just pours down for you know the whole week. Um, but... I think they'll get away with one win where they just take us to town, take us to the cleaners. We won't be able to get, you know, a Bearstow and a Stokes out and they'll just take a game away from us. Um, but we know Jofra and Jimmy Anderson having just done a little groin. Um, they've got some bowling stocks, some very good bowlers, but I think our group as a whole, I think we're going to be too good. Uh, Copes, you've been so generous with your time today. Uh, thanks for chatting with us. We really appreciate it. And all the best uh, for the upcoming summer with the Channel 7 commentary team. Yeah, thanks, boys. Thanks for having me.